1: Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael The Pod Pena. Now, Michael, you for, you neglected to mention that this week was Michael Pina week on Twitter. I'm pretty sure you wrote a piece on every major website. I really appreciated your cover story on Vanity Fair about uh, you know your amazing new look and an overhaul of your summer um, you know wardrobe. Congratulations on on that coverage as well, but. Um, in all seriousness, people need to check out your work on the Ringer Five Thirty Eight GQ. Did I forget anything else, Michael?
5: No, but thanks for shouting out that yeah that that profile I wrote about Regina King for Vanity Fair. I, <laughs> that was I, thank you very much for bringing that to the people's attention too.
4: Slight hyperbole, okay, but only <laughs> only a touch because you were everywhere. We're going to dive into some of the stuff that you've been working on uh, later on this episode, but we have to start. With, uh, you know, chapter two of the U. Bum Chronicles, um, you know, three years after President Trump and LeBron James first tangled over um, the Golden State Warriors White House visit, uh, we saw another exchange take place uh, last night here in the bubble. Now, just to catch everyone up, uh, obviously, the players have been kneeling, as we've been talking about, and those demonstrations have garnered quite a bit of, uh, you know, press attention uh, Donald Trump was asked about the NBA players kneeling. You know, he's been a critic of, of professional athletes in the past in general, but also specifically uh, those who kneel during the anthem. Um, on a Fox News interview, Trump said, quote, I think it's disgraceful. We worked with the NBA very hard trying to get them open. Um, now I'm seeing, seeing everyone kneeling during the anthem. It's not acceptable to me. When I see them kneeling, I just turn off the game. I have no interest in the game. Um, you know, And basically, uh, those comments were put to LeBron James after the Lakers uh, took a pretty big loss to the Oklahoma City Thunder on Wednesday night. LeBron replied, I really don't think the basketball community is sad about losing his viewership. The game will go on without his eyes on it. I can sit here and speak for all of us that love the game of basketball we could not care less. He then went on to encourage everybody uh, basically to vote in November, saying that it was a big moment for us as Americans. And then um you know Trump made a a comment that he's made a number of times saying that quote, "No one has done better for the black community than me with the possible exception of Abraham Lincoln." LeBron was informed of that comment and his reply was are you trying to make me laugh right now? I appreciate that. So I think we pretty much got the full back and forth there, um, you know, between these two parties. Um, I'm I'm curious, Michael. Does it does this matter? Is this hot air? Is this just another you know cycle of, of Twitter trash talk that ultimately leaves everybody feeling uh, you know a little bit empty and, and guilty after indulging or? Is there is this some reflection of progress in this conversation, um, you know, as it relates to the NBA's Black Lives Matter demonstrations?
5: To pose this question as does it matter is really interesting to me because it's sad that it does. It's the president of the United States who is a total buffoon, and he is basically flailing as a participant in the culture wars, when there is a global pandemic going on and whether or not NBA players are kneeling during the national Anthem should be absolutely at the bottom of his to-do list in terms of griping about, uh, so in that, I mean, it, it matters from that perspective and it's just like down and out tragic that we have to talk about it like that. But, um, but it's always like good to see just LeBron eloquently combat him and kind of bat him down as trying to reduce him to uh, as irrelevant a human being as he possibly can, which is very difficult because he's, uh, you know, uh, ostensibly the most powerful person on the planet. Uh, And also, you know, every single time (laughs) that Trump does say that no one has done more for the black community than him, it is truly like, Legit, grade A comedy. So I, I am. I, I echo LeBron's reaction to that as well. I think it matters a lot,
4: Michael. Here's my take. Here's why. Um, you know, the, the thing that rubbed me the wrong way about the you bum controversy, and that was three years ago, 2017, mm-hmm. is that it became a moment where you're being reduced to name calling and back and forth. That is just pure frustration. And it feels just like you're venting. And his tweet, I mean, I remember it got on the front of the New York Times, I believe, as a headline, um, because he's the most prominent voice in American sports going after a sitting president. Um, You know, it winds up just kind of in some ways stooping to kind of the crassness of the conversation that has um, you know taken over in politics here over the last four or five years. And while a lot of people thought it was funny and certainly it was very bold, and I know he caught a lot of flack for it, um, you know, from, uh, you know, probably the other side of the aisle, if you want to term it that way, it mm-hmm. left me with mixed feelings because, you know, ultimately it's like, is this helping anything? Is this moving us forward in any way? Or is this just pure frustration with no outlet um, that winds up feeling like, you know, you vented and nothing changed? And I think what we've seen here, not only among athletes, but also just among the media is an idea of like, okay, you've had a few years to kind of figure out how to cover and react to a very unconventional president. Um, Have they made progress on that front? Have they been a little bit more productive, whether it's with the fact checking, whether it's with certain presentation on television, so it's not just uh, airing his interviews without any context, um, whether it is Um, you know, pushing back on some of the claims or even delaying the broadcast so that it's not running live. And then I think from the commentary space, um, not necessarily treating every single comment at face value, right? And understanding that, you know, perhaps um, there is some mission trying to be accomplished with some of the things that is being said.
5: He is a bad faith operator in just about everything that he tries to communicate to the American people.
4: So when LeBron takes Trump's criticism which is, you know, kind of personally leveled at NBA players, you guys are disgraceful, Um, you know, you're disrespecting the flag and those kinds of comments. Rather than engaging on those particular topics, LeBron pivots to November is a very important moment for us as Americans, right? And that goes hand-in-hand hand with the initiative that we've talked about before, the More Than a Vote campaign. It goes hand-in-hand mm-hmm. hand with the efforts that the NBA Players uh, you know, Association has put out there in terms of having vote on some of these guys' jerseys, in terms of opening up NBA uh, buildings as voting precincts. It does feel like a more coordinated, thoughtful response. And you could see LeBron searching for his words when he was talking last night. Because he didn't want it to turn into an ugly, you know, let's just throw mud back and forth type of fight. And he already knew that, you know, whatever he said was probably going to provoke potentially another round of of a firestorm from media outlets or from, uh, you know, tweets from the president uh, as well. And so it did seem like he <laughs> was <so> ridiculous. <laughs> tr- he was trying to be more constructive, don't you think? And it's just like to me, that's a big difference from you bum to go vote. And here's my uh, effort to help you go vote. Right. I think that I to me. I feel a lot better on this one than I did on the U-Bum one. Does that make sense?
5: Right. I think that there's a few factors here. I mean, optically, sure. Like, I think in the eyes of some, LeBron looks a little better here. I personally loved U-Bum a lot. Like, I, it's one of my all-time favorite tweets. Um, but also... You, you seem like the kind of person who would get a T-shirt <laughs> that like,
4: has the tweet printed out on the chest. Is that is that right? I mean, I, don't, I know your aesthetic a little bit from that Vanity Fair profile cover shoot, but... Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I'm
5: more the type of person who gets it framed and sticks it up in the living room. That's that's more of my style with that. I love um, it. Social media it, art. This just so yeah, avant-garde, it just, Michael. <laughs> it just ups my mood every time I enter the room. Um, but I think another factor here is just... You know, you have a carrot at the end of the stick here, right? Like in 2017, it's a little more difficult to talk about voting and get people enthused about voting uh, when the election, the next election for the presidency is, you know, years away. Right now, it's right around the corner. It's like less than what is it, like 90 days away or something like that. So you can really sniff change in the air and he's really grasped, LeBron is really grasping the opportunity. And as you said, his more than a vote campaign, which is, it spreads, it spreads awareness, it educates, and it also is very active in tangible ways. I mean, it's raising money to pay for X ex-convicted uh, felons in Florida who have to pay fines before they can vote because of voter suppression tactics in that state. And and it's just really great to see from LeBron James.
4: So let, let's spin this forward one more round and say, okay, well, if this does count as kind of progress in terms of, you know, a communication strategy and just an overall, like, a- advocacy and activism mm-hmm. standpoint... Um, and we know this is probably going to keep happening over the next three months because the election is right around the corner. I think you and I have been sort of predicting this kind of blow up or this kind of face-to-face confrontation really for a couple months now. Um, what would your advice be to LeBron or to Chris Paul or to these other players um, who could wind up finding themselves in this back and forth? I mean, there is at least some you know, potential backlash among fans who just you know get fatigued of the conversation. You know, I've heard that um, you know, from a few people, and a lot of them are, you know, Twitter users, so you have to kind of question, all right, well, are they just trying to make a point? Or are, they, um, are they genuine about it? Do you, is there any concern there that they could take this um, too far? Should they just continue to push it and hope that everybody winds up understanding that they're on the quote-unquote right side of history? Um, what would your be- advice be to them? And I ask that because there was another major announcement yesterday, which was that the NBA and the Players Union Um, have finalized plans for a $300 million foundation. Basically, Mm -hmm. it will be funded $1 million per year for the next 10 years per team um, around the league. And the players will have a say-so in how that money gets distributed. The main focus is um, basically employment-based help and assistance for people trying to get their first job or to advance in their careers. And obviously, it's targeted towards uh, the black community. So you have... These guys are working hard to, you know, make real change to deliver on stuff that's, uh, you know, beyond just the jerseys and the decals on the court and everything else. And now they're they're going to have the biggest possible stage by kind of going head to head with a major political figure. Um, What would your advice be to them as they navigate that?
5: I think you need to be continue to be organized, continue to stay on a message. Do not get bogged down in a, I guess, just a, a, a battle with someone who is really just using you as a pawn in his own scheme to rile up. A base that doesn't even care about uh, what you're speaking of and what message you're promoting in the first place so talk about voting continuously through I mean beyond when the season ends through the November election uh, continue to spread awareness about it continue to educate people because a big part of voter suppression is the belief particularly in uh, in minority communities that their vote does not matter Uh, because of voter suppression tactics uh, that have been enacted by different states in the union. So getting out there, making sure people understand how important it is that they do participate in the democratic process, um, that's a big one. And, you know, getting on Twitter and arguing with Trump or arguing with different Republican senators or or whoever, you know, I I just don't know how uh, it does draw attention, I suppose, to some of Uh, the, I guess, bankrupt thought from those people uh, on that side. But uh, it's also ultimately not the best way to use your time. I don't recommend, you know, you asked me to give advice. I don't recommend getting on Twitter and arguing with people. That's just not a great way to spend your precious time on this planet. Uh, That's a a good take. I guess where I'm kind of going with this is there's that
4: old Michelle Obama phrase about like, they go low, we go high. And for a while there, that was like, unimpeachable logic. Everybody agreed, you know, take the high road, you'll, you know, kind of wind up winning. And then there was like a real crisis in 2016, 2017, where people were like, wait a minute, like they're going really low. Like, do we need to like, maybe just bend down a little bit or stoop here a little, you know, just like get, get dirty, get our hands dirty. Uh, you know, you know, fight fire with fire. I guess, um, you know, that there was that kind of uh, line of thinking. And now I wonder though, in this particular moment, where public opinion on, on this particular issue has shifted quite a bit over the last few months in favor of uh, the social justice demonstrators and protesters. I do wonder if they can now just continue to adopt this, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know they go low, we go high approach. I think it's more effective. I think if you do get into this back and forth, that's where you'd wind up alienating more people I think that anyone who was upset by what LeBron said had already kind of made up their mind on this issue, right? And I think if right. anyone is like in the middle on it or like doesn't have an opinion, that's amazing in our polarized society. But I think they would be able to view LeBron as um, fairly restrained in what he had to say, and again, productive towards an end goal of let's try to solve this problem at the ballot box, which I think ultimately is is a, a good mm-hmm. long term goal. So. I guess I would say channel your Michelle Obama if they ask me. Thanks. No one's asking me, but maybe that would be uh, my advice.
5: Yeah. And I also just want to really quickly say on the note of the uh, the fund that is being created by the 30 governors uh, in collaboration with the MBPA that you mentioned, you know, I think that that is that's really good to see. I'm not disparaging it. I really do hope, though, that it extends beyond that and continues to uh benefits some of the causes of the Black Lives Matter movement which is you know defunding the police and and reforming hardcore reforming the criminal justice system and education reform and all these different areas that are affected by systemic oppression so i think that that is a step in the right direction but you know this is not a a fight that will be ended in 10 years or 1 year or however long it needs to be sustained for sure all right let's um, let's pivot here uh,
4: let's get back towards the beautiful game, as LeBron was calling it last night, and and, uh, and everything that's been happening on the court. We've seen a whole bunch of fun storylines develop, whether it is um, the chase for that West 8th seed, um, I'm not going to say the chase for the for the East eighth seed is a fun story by any stretch. I think you're Boston a, cra- yeah. <laughs> a crawl
5: for the East eighth, eighth seed.
4: <laughs> it's sort of like when you get into a um, you know a sleeping bag and you just roll down a hill. I think that's sure. sort of what what's happening in the in the Eastern Conference for their final spot. Um, your Boston Celtics are back to life. I'm sure you're breathing a huge sigh of relief. I mean, you and uh, the other minions out there. Um, <laughs> but you had a really fun story on the Ringer. And you had teased it not too long ago on this podcast, this idea of the one dribble three pointer, and I had explained mm-hmm. to you back during my NBA playing days. how that was one of yes. my favorite shots, and uh, you know certainly uh, it's it's a contrast to just the pure catch and shoot, which has was like completely in vogue there for years and years, thanks to the Spurs and the Warriors and the Rockets um, and everything else. But talk to me about this story. Give us the elevator pitch for people who haven't gotten a chance to read it. And what was your major takeaway? Like once you you put uh, this one to bed after months of, of planning and everything else, like what was that, that nugget you wanted everybody to kind of, uh, you know, take away from it?
5: Yeah. So, I mean, with me, sometimes when I come up with story ideas, it'll just be I'll, I'm watching a game and I see something happen and I'm like, why did that happen? Is it happening more often than it used to? What are the benefits of it? Why is this meaningful? And so I forget exactly who took the shot. I think it might have been uh, Boyan Bogdanovich, And it was a game like way earlier in the season. And it was the Jazz versus somebody. And he pump faked and he got a flyby on his defender. And typically what you see there, there was a, a wide open lane in front of him to drive to the basket. And instead he kind of like sidestepped uh, a little backwards, and took this three, and it's like obviously we know that uh, we know, after taking a dribble, we obviously know that the three pointer is really important, and that teams want to take as many as possible. But I wanted to look at kind of guys that I initially wanted to look at guys who aren't super athletic. Who, when a defender is trying to take away their three and smother them, what do they do? How do they respond? And so, taking one dribble and taking a sidestep or a step back, or uh, I mean, there's just myriad different options that you can take out of that one dribble, but how do they create space for themselves and do they practice it? And so, I had this conversation that led me to a conversation I had with Joe Harris at a Nets practice also one million years ago, where we talked for quite a while about how important it is to him, and he broke it down for me in really technical form that didn't make the story because it was probably a little boring to the masses. Uh, but it was important, and I felt like I was onto something. So then I went and I talked to a whole bunch of different players, and I talked to Drew Hanlon, the skills trainer for Jason Tatum and Zach Levine and Bradley Beal, and uh, yeah, it's just it's a shot that is you know taking one dribble and shooting a three is just increasingly important in the league. And I hope that I did a good job of explaining why and explaining why more players are looking to add it to their games and how it can extend careers and how it can add value to different players who otherwise wouldn't have it. So how much of this trend is a
4: development in response to changing defensive strategies, right? Where like, if you've got all this space to cover right. and defenses are now more like kind of designed as outside in rather than inside out. So you're just kind of trying to always make sure you have the corners cover. You're trying to make sure you're always, you know, flying around and rotating. You've got faster, longer defensive players as opposed to like the big hulky guys inside. Those guys are now maybe able to cover ground and chase out to shooters and, and contest three point shots better than they were a few years ago. How much of the one dribble three is just these guys learning to reset and avoid, you know, the kamikaze defensive closeouts that we, we see regularly in half court now?
5: Yeah, that's a huge part of it, Ben, because a lot of these guys entered the league as catch and shoot three. You know, they'd come off a pin down. Or a flare screen or whatever, and they'd be open for three, and they'd just catch a pass and shoot it, and that was their value. And recently, there has been—I would say—over the past three, four, five years, there has been obviously a much greater focus in terms of taking away those shots because they're so valuable. But then also signing you know players to your roster who are athletic enough and long enough and versatile enough to make them really difficult. And the game is obviously super fast and, you know, you sprint out at a shooter, there's a a need to be in control and disciplined and to try to get that shooter off the three point line. But the shooter's job is to stay behind the three point line and take a three. So yeah, I think that adding one dribble and trying to create that space is just a humongous weapon for some of these guys. And What was really interesting to me also is just how often really good scorers, just like pure scorers like Zach Levine and Jason Tatum and Brad Beal, I already mentioned all those guys, but Dame Lillard, uh, Harden, Luca, like the one dribble three for them is also really important just because, you know, you can take, yeah, six, seven, eight dribbles and try to get a shot off. But if you, you can just take one and create that space, that's just, it's quicker, it's more efficient and uh, I just think it's a really fascinating, uh, I don't don't know if it's a trend, but it's a really fascinating development that we're seeing.
4: Oh, for sure. I would consider it to be be a trend, Um, in part because the superstar level guys who are doing it in high quantity are now going left with it, going right with it, going backwards with it, stepping forward with it, kind of doing it at different angles, and that's just definitely not something that we saw five years ago. It almost reminds me of dodgeball, you know, where it's like, You're, like, jumping out of the way of the defender just like you would, like, jump out of the way of a dodgeball before resetting and throwing back. Um, That's, like, the visual element to some of this, uh, the resetting stuff. I want to just kind of underscore this um, for, you know, basketball viewers in terms of, like, why is this a big deal? What we used to see with the catch-and-shoot three-point guys is, so if they get the ball in the corner and there's somebody closing out hard and they pump fake – um, your defender flies by, now you're, you feel like you're in a five-on-four situation, and your natural mm-hmm. impulse in that moment is to attack, because that, right. e- that defender in front of you is no longer there. And lots of bad things can happen in that situation, especially if you're a Joe Harris or a J.J. Redick or that type of player where you're never really handling the ball a lot, and you're not going to be an above-the-rim finisher, most likely. And you're not accustomed to weaving through traffic and reading, uh, rotating defenses, and you know trying to make these dynamic plays around the basket because that's never your role. So it actually winds up being the psychological trick where you're like forcing guys out of their comfort zone with that mm-hmm. that hard closeout, and now you're almost suckering them into potentially making a mistake. And, you know, lots of different ways things can happen. They could take a floater, that's a low percentage shot. They could try to get to the rim and wind up having a a, a fast, long closeout defender just stuff them, go the other way. You could have Mm -hmm. a turnover in traffic, which could happen. I mean, all these things cut into what the analytic dorks would talk about, like expected value of that uh, possession, right? where it doesn't necessarily have to fail the same way every time, but lots of things can happen when you're pushing guys out of their comfort zone. And what we know about the catch and shoot guys, their comfort zone is, you know, straight on shooting. So taking that one dribble to the side to uh, avoid the, uh, the hard closeout and then just recalibrating for another three pointer, the expected value on that shot is very, very high in large part because they should be wide open um, without those defenders in the way. So, um, But it it takes learning how to do it, for sure, and getting your rhythm. And uh, I think that the fact that there are trainers out there, like the people you're talking to, who have formalized this, right, who have almost turned it into like an assembly line process, and you're seeing guys take these kinds of shots now, actually before games as well, Um, you know, just getting used to the rhythm of that as opposed to just setting your feet, bang, bang, and shooting, you know, setting your feet, getting the catch, taking the dribble to your left, taking the dribble to your right, and then unloading. Um, it's cool, man. And it, it was a great idea for a story. And uh, it's the, the type where I was noticing on Twitter, I think you had a lot of other writers feeling a little jealous, Michael. They were
5: in, they're in their
4: feelings, uh, maybe, because they hadn't thought of this one.
5: I uh, No comment on that. Uh, I was just really appreciative of The Ringer so for publishing humble, it. So <laughs> humble. So humble. Michael DePod, just Mr. Humble. Yeah, no, but thanks. I mean, you summed it up really well, with everything that you just said, I could have just like, we could have just talked about it and I could have recorded what you just outlined and typed it out and that probably would have been a better story. So shout out to you.
4: Well, I'm not like a self-loathing Knicks fan like your other story this week, which I really enjoy. Just, uh, you know, surveying all the most depraved Knicks fans as they watch <laughs> Chris Stapp's was a real stroke of genius from you. Great content. Um, I encourage people to check that one out as well hey we got a bunch of questions from the open floor globe they emailed us openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com and michael we haven't taken a bunch of questions recently uh because we've just had so much to talk about but there are some follow-ups that people want to get in and and ask questions about the bubble as well so let's dig in here johnny says plenty of people inside and outside of the black community clearly and obviously are in support of the statement black lives matter but against the political movement that is Black Lives Matter. A simple glance on their website will show you that their main aim is to defund the police. Some people disagree that Black Lives Matter, the movement, actually has the interests of black people at the forefront of their aims. Unfortunately, it is difficult to express these opinions in times of such heightened tensions, particularly to the media who are only interested in sound bites. And so that that email from Johnny was in response to our conversation about Jonathan Isaac and his protest in terms of, you know, standing uh, during the national anthem rather than kneeling with his teammates and not wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Of course, he did say in his interview afterwards that, you know, he's black and and Black Lives Matter to him. Um, But he did seem to hint that he wasn't in favor of the particular movement, the specific movement um, that has kind of gained attention here. It's an important point um, from Johnny for sure. I'm curious, I mean, Michael, what did you make of, of this email and the distinction that he's trying to draw?
5: Yeah, I'm personally, I get a little confused any time Black Lives Matter is conflated as a political movement. I mean, I suppose, like, everything, quote-unquote, is political, but it's like Black Lives Matter was started uh, because uh, three black women wanted to see policy changes after seeing, you know, generations of unarmed black people get disproportionately shot and killed by the police. So when they say defund the police, first of all, on the website, which I went to, I'd never really gone there and read the, you know, the what we believe section. I'd never actually gone there until I read this email. So uh, thank you to Johnny for even pointing that out to me. But I went there and I actually read what's written. And, uh, you know, defund the police is literally hand in hand with, It goes literally hand in hand with invest in communities. And there's uh, at the very end of that section, they write, we embody and practice justice, liberation and peace in our engagements with one another. That's basically the message of it. They want equality. So these should be basic tenets that everyone is on board with. And I'm just like fundamentally uh, confused and a little disturbed when people try to say that it is uh, not in line with what the black community wants. And I mean, first of all, speaking, I shouldn't generalize and say that the black community, because black people are individuals, and it's not uh, a mass uh, way of thinking. Um, But it is sad to me, uh, if anyone feels threatened by this organization, and in my opinion, to be in direct opposition to it, is kind of the definition of being pro-white supremacy. I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room there. Yeah,
4: I, I wonder if, um, if this movement, or whatever you want to call it, this phrase even, has just expanded beyond this this website, right? Like, if we're just trying to define for sure, for sure, uh, this phrasing or the t-shirts or what the NBA players are about or why they're demonstrating or why people were protesting, if. That is just a heck of a lot bigger at this moment than that particular website or the people who founded it, right? Like sometimes you can have a great idea and it just completely blows up, and now it's everyone's idea, right? It's not just uh, your particular idea, um, and whatever your initial aims, you know, there's going to have to be probably compromises and recalibrations along the way uh, as you're going. And I'm sure for the the founders, this has been a really challenging and complicated time, right? Trying to keep whatever their message were as the main messages, as, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are in the streets, um, you know, using that same phrasing, um, it must be extraordinarily stressful for them. But, um, Yeah, I guess it kind of goes back to, okay, so did Jonathan Isaac make it as clear as possible with his actions where his heart stands? And I think that it would be very easy for someone to interpret just even the simple picture of him standing without that T-shirt on in the wrong way. And I, I do give the media credit for asking him directly, like, do you believe Black Lives Matter? Had that question not been asked... I think he could find himself in a situation where he was really misconstrued. So I, I don't want to belabor that point. Um, I did just want to kind of like add that level of, of context in is there is a clear distinction that Johnny is pointing out. There are a lot of people who agree in principle, but not necessarily with the specifics of, of that uh, you know organization. Um, but at the same time, I'm wondering, does focusing on those specifics really even matter as much as it did, say, six months ago?
5: Right. Um, I just... I guess what black lives matter is about being like not believing in it is I, I just I, like specifically, I just don't really understand like what the problem is, I guess. Like, it, can you kind of, do you see where I'm like, what I'm struggling with here? Like, I just don't understand why, like, I'm not saying like, I don't understand why people are racist, but I just don't understand why uh, this has become so controversial, I guess.
4: Well, I think Johnny's point, I didn't put this in the in the outline, but Johnny's point was that the idea of defund the police is a lot more controversial than the idea of Black Lives Matter. And so if one of their main goals is like reorganizing law enforcement, and then you have people, especially in like low income or high crime neighborhoods, who might feel differently about that particular issue than, than someone else, there could just be more debate and more sides to it. And people could be impacted by it uh, more directly in lots of different ways. And in some cases, Um, they could be police officers themselves because, you know, that's, uh, you know, a a major employer um, in in those communities. They might just feel differently about that particular notion. And if they look at the organization Black Lives Matter as being largely focused on defunding the police, that winds up becoming not, you know, not more toxic, but just more of a a heated debate. And it's something that there is, you know, multiple Mm -hmm. sides to. And, You could understand some resistance, even from NBA players, to wanting to align themselves with that movement if they feel passionately about that, right?
5: No, yeah, that's well said. I I mean, when I hear defund the police, I personally just think it means redistribution of wealth in black communities uh, towards black businesses, towards schools, uh, just, you know, desegregation, just all these different things. And so I guess... uh, what i how i view it is obviously not how everyone sees it and i yeah it's it's this is such a (laughs) complicated it's a tough thing to
4: wrap your mind around man i'm with you i mean i everyone has his or her own take on what these particular slogans mean or phrases mean and um there is a wide variety in terms of how people interpret these things
3: Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.
4: All right, let's shift gears here a little bit. Uh, We got a question from MVP listener Thaddeus. He wants to know, serious question, is James Harden all right? Ben, have you seen anything there on the ground in the bubble? And Michael, did you see that video of Harden walking up the ramp at the end of the Blazers game? He looked like he was laboring just to walk up a ramp to get to the locker room. His activity was crazy low. Against Portland, so I'll start there, Michael, because you know your entire life is hanging on James Harden and, and his ability to carry the load for the Houston Rockets. Um, what did you see? I mean, of course, Houston started out two and zero, looking great. Um, they take one loss, and, and Thaddeus is ready to, to
5: jump off ship. But what do you think? Yeah, come on, Thaddeus. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm like I'm like not really concerned at all. Um, you know, Harden. I don't know. I feel like that was, that was like a real, were you at that game, Ben? I was, it was a fun game. Portland earned it for sure. They
4: controlled it. It was a a little bit choppy at times, lots of foul calls. Harden was in foul trouble himself. I guess the point that I'm, I'm wondering to take away, I'm not so worried about the ramp video in general, Michael, can we agree? Too much coverage of ramp videos this summer. (laughs) I think we can agree on that, (laughs) tying it back to our opening conversation as well. Um, but, uh, playing for the Rockets seems exhausting and not even just for Harden and Westbrook. I mean, the style of play stuff is amazing. It does look fun, and they are having fun. Like, their pregame routine, they were doing, like, an impromptu dunk contest, like throwing alley-oops off the side of the glass, dancing around, you know, having a pretty good time. But... They're asking those guys to do an awful lot. I mean covering an awful lot of ground defensively taking on physical matchups, having the ball in their hands constantly creating a lot one on one off the dribble, driving hard into the you know traffic and granted you know it's it's usually spread out traffic so sometimes you're just waltzing to the, the hoop for layups um, but not always and you're taking blows and getting to the free throw line. I think it's a fair question you know if you want to say how does the rocket strategy not work? It's because it's so exhausting and it's so overwhelming, and they go so sh- you know shallow into their bench, and they put so much on the main guys that they could wear down over the course of a series, wear down over the course of games, and you know just the, the frantic comeback idea, you know late in games, it-, it sounds good in theory, but is that replicable? Can you do that night after night after night, or do you just wind up running out of gas? And especially if you're you know so leveraged on the three pointers, are you going to be mm-hmm. able to keep guys in good enough game shape? Where they're hitting three pointers consistently and you're not running into one of those worst case scenarios where it's twenty seven straight misses at the end of an exhausting playoff series, right?
5: Yeah. I I, I wonder just how much Harden misses playing with C P just in that in that that like aesthetic and that style of we're just gonna play really slow and let me dribble like, crouch down and grind out the oppo- the opposition by switching. And it's really just going to be a half-court contest. And then, like, Westbrook comes along, and he's zooming up and down the floor a million miles an hour. And that guy just, like, never gets tired, regardless of what's going on. Um, but, like, fundamentally, yeah, again, I'm not really too concerned with any of this. I think Harden is—he's been really— Productive so far in the bubble. It's a really small sample size, but he looks like himself. Um, and I'm with you with the like the guy just played however many minutes in a really like that that was playoff intensity to me. Maybe it's just because I haven't watched basketball in so long, but it seemed very intense, especially relative to some of the other games that I've watched over the past week. And it's like you're catching him right after it's over. And I like, I'm when I like run outside after about 15 minutes with a mask on these days, like I look so much worse than Harden did after an NBA game. So I can only imagine just the physical toll that that kind of takes on you.
4: For sure. And we're going to see him again with a, another game just tonight, you know, against the Lakers where, um, you know, stylistic mismatch um they are going to have the potential to try to really run the lakers you know and and try to stretch their defense pieces out and take advantage of some of the lakers weaker links and you know let's just you know from an energy standpoint the lakers are on a back-to-back so that'll be an interesting just viewpoint and how they handle that they did not look good at all on wednesday night yeah i was about
5: to say did the lakers even you call that competing wednesday night Ooh, ooh, Michael's getting in some digs. So you're feeling a little, you're feeling your oats, I
4: think is what the phrase they, they use, because you <laughs> declared on the last episode, the Lakers are not contenders and they got worked by like 20 points by the Oklahoma City Thunder didn't have their offense going. I think right now they rank dead last in points, if I'm not mistaken, offensively, which seems kind of impossible. Um, are you ready to go a step further? Are you going to predict them as out in the first round? I mean, how how much are you feeling yourself here, Mike? Are they going to lose in the second to the Rockets? Let's get a little bit more specific, you know, in your anti-Lakers sentiment here.
5: So I I actually just wrote a column about this that was published literally as we're recording. So I'll let people go. You can read that now on GQ.com. Uh, Yeah, the Lakers... They just have a lot of problems, man. Like, you know, you don't want to overreact to a team that shoots 25% from the three-point line over four games, you know, inside a bubble, whatever. But fundamentally, like, just how they're structured and built and the ways that they can play and how limited they are in their options, I just don't see them, like, at this point, it sounds sacrilegious. But I'd be a little surprised if they even got to the conference finals. I really would. Like, I think that the Rockets, and now everyone who's listening to this is probably like listening right after the Lakers, like, trolloped the Rockets by like 40 tonight. But I really think the Rockets are just such a matchup nightmare for them, man. Like, the Rockets can score on anybody because of how they play. And the Lakers. They can't shoot threes, and so that is that. That's been a problem throughout the entire regular season. And we thought that you know, oh, they'll just go small and put AD at the five. It's like their half court offense with AD at the five is just straight up bad. So I, it has been this whole season. And when you remove Avery Bradley from those lineups, it's just terrible. So I don't like. I don't see a, a silver lining here for them. And if they think that you know, relying on 35-year-old LeBron James to drag them through four straight playoff rounds and relying on Anthony Davis, who has frankly never played like a super meaningful NBA game in his career, uh, to take them over the top. I just don't think that that's a formula for success. And I know that they're the one seed and I know that Vegas has them with the, the best championship odds. I just, I don't see it, man. I don't.
4: I love this. So can I get you to look into your crystal ball for a moment? and yes. it is let's say it's you know probably late september the rockets have just eliminated the lakers in six games um espn commentators are just in shambles right i mean like they're just shocked they can't believe it we're all trying to wrap our mind around what's this next month going to look like without lebron james kind of headlining the bubble we've got you know, the three people in the entire world who actually believed in the Houston Rockets, including you, probably dancing a jig, you know, feeling like this is the greatest <laughs> moment of your life. I mean, what is, what would that be like? What is that alternate history? Like, where does that take you kind of mentally, that alternate, uh, that hypothetical? Um, you know, what are the conversations that are taking place? What are the overreactions? Are people mad that the nba didn't rig it for lebron are they tuning out because nobody wants to watch harden the cheater are they finally coming around to harden and saying like wow you know we kind of left him out of the best player alive conversation like what does that look like if the rockets do somehow uh, knock out the the lakers
5: uh you're really just painting a utopia for me i actually think that uh Well, it's it's the Disney impact. I'm on the happiest (laughs) place on Earth, and all I can do
4: is just, like, dream these magical dreams, you know? Beasts become princes. uh, All sorts of stuff goes on out here.
5: Fantasyland. I I think that, you know, this goes back to the asterisk conversation. I think you will never see a bigger asterisk in your whole life than if the Rockets win the championship. That's what—people will blame the bubble— Like, there's no tomorrow. That'll just be the number one. Like, oh, this was the weirdest season. Of course, Harden wins the title when everyone is quarantining. Of course, that's when Mike D'Antoni finally breaks through and Daryl Morey's analytics campaign works. Like, that is, that's what's going to happen here. I just, I can feel it in my bones. So fair warning to Adidas, start planning now. You're going to want to have the Adidas
4: <laughs> asterisk colorway of the James Harden sneakers, right? And Jordan's probably already on this with the Russell Westbrook sneakers. Just get t-shirts with the giant asterisk logo. You've got to lean all the way into it if you're them. Um, don't you think? Like you have, Don't you have to kind of confront that head on if that's the, the major talking point?
5: <laughs> no i mean you, you should just quit this podcast right now and go work as a marketing executive for adidas have you thought about it? have they offered made any crazy offers to you they will well, after they hear this
4: well look come on as a beaverson boy yeah you know, that 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 would be uh that would be like you working <laughs> for the lakers front yeah. office i mean come on michael that's never gonna happen all right we got another question here it's on fouls though dom writes the nba is often cited as a league that has its pulse on what fans want tell me then why we haven't seen a change in how games are officiated think almost everyone is in agreement that there are too many fouls in the modern game. If the NBA wants to boost ratings, then it's in their best interest to tell the officials to relax on the whistle so we can see improved game flow. Uh, this point has been accentuated in the bubble where there's even more fouls than before, making games unwatchable at times, even for a hardcore fan like me. Do you guys agree that there just flat out needs to be fewer fouls, And we're doing so boost ratings? Keep up the good work. Well, thank you for that email, Tom. What do you think, Michael? Is it just as easy as being like, hey, guys, put your whistle in your pocket and let them play?
5: I mean, it sucks when there's more fouls. I think that everyone agrees on that. Watching a game live, watching players take free throws is excruciating for me personally, and it's why like i almost never watch games live i'll always watch them on some kind of delay so i can fast forward through commercials and free throws be it like 5 minutes 2 minutes 3 hours whatever like i hate i hate just sitting around cuz i know i'm just going to pick up my phone and then get distracted so i'm with you dom i 100% agree but like at the same time if players are getting fouled what do you want the referees to do it's not like they're making these fouls up like you know like you know what i mean like in I mean, an example is like the Devin Booker's buzzer beater. Can we agree that he was fouled on that shot over Paul George? Do you think that that was a safe contest or didn't that that was a foul, Ben?
4: I was so mad about Kawhi Leonard, how he played that, that I didn't even necessarily yeah. like break down the this the frame by frame on whether Paul George got him, but... Why is Kawhi Leonard stunning at Booker to recover to Ricky Rubio in the corner? Can you? Uh, I know you're a mathematics major, Michael. What are the odds that Devin Booker passes to Ricky Rubio in that situation? And is it possible that it's negative, like a negative percentage? Is that actually even uh, mathematically possible? I would say a negative 72% that Booker passes to Rubio or to basically anyone in that spot. Kawhi Leonard's got to get his Michael Jordan on, mm. go jump... Uh, Devin Booker on the double team and force some crazy fall away so they can go play overtime. I mean, that to me was an inexcusable. And the second one in, in Orlando, the second late game lapse from your favorite, Kawhi Leonard. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad we're talking about this. I, like, because i think that that's my favorite play of the bubble and that's kind of the signature play of the bubble so far it was um, a
4: sick shot i'm gonna give it to him i mean you, you can't take anything away from that and even the celebration video was awesome for them i saw a Suns blog say it was the best shot by someone on the Suns
5: since 2006 and like oh my god you know who was that kobe's airball to run our test was that what was referring <laughs> to
4: I know. <laughs> I want to say it was. I want to say there was a Raja Bell shot. Maybe we're gonna have to get fact checked by a Suns okay. fan. To be honest, I don't have a, an encyclopedic memory of 15 year old Suns highlights, unfortunately. But,
5: um, yeah, but the point I, I is, real... it had been a while. That was the point. Yeah. And real quick, like the Clippers' defense for this play was like straight up brilliant. Like Zubac comes up and doubles Booker, forces him left, right to Kawhi. Uh, I think they got the the possession Phoenix did 10 seconds left off a steal so like for the Clippers to be this organized was incredible and they force him funnel him to the sideline Kawhi like he leaves his feet man like he falls for a pump fake which you don't see that with Kawhi Leonard he has so much confidence in his own abilities and his length and his huge hands to really dictate the action. So for Booker to get Kawhi in the air, spin the opposite direction, tilt back, drill the shot. Like I got to just like tip my cap off to Devin Booker and say that's one of like the best shots I've ever seen, but then also Kawhi, yeah, I'm with you. What are you what are you doing, man?
4: Yeah, I was uh, stunning. I mean, maybe he's just trying to like convince everybody uh that they're vulnerable right like he's just sandbagging a little bit before the playoffs and they just rip off a stretch but man that was uh very questionable i I would like to be in the defensive uh meeting room where they break down that play and Kawhi has to own up to it because that was not great all right we got a question from ja he's addressing this one to you michael he says where is celtic's world on gordon hayward how good is he I've been watching these games, and I can't even tell. It seems like he shoots okay, but not frighteningly well. He makes good cuts, but he's not really pulling in the defense. It seems like he's trying hard on defense and rebounds decently, um, but I don't know. It seems like he's fine, but maybe not that special. It's always hard to separate our history from our expectations when we're evaluating. I feel like if Hayward was undrafted out of Butler and making a third as much money as he does right now, we'd think of him as a great value role player who didn't necessarily do one thing or another excellent, but was just good all around. Instead, Hayward gets painted as an overpaid guy who does a lot of things well, but nothing amazing, and leaving people constantly wanting for more. Michael, are you with that assessment? Um, do you have a, a more green-beerzy view of Hayward? I mean, where are you on um, Gordon Hayward right now?
5: No, I'm I'm pretty realistic and down-to-earth when it comes to assessing Gordon Hayward and just how he's played and performed since that injury a couple of years ago. I mean, I don't think he'll ever be the same guy. Uh, he'll never be an all-star again. And that's just a real, that's a that's like a, a gut punch for the Celtics because you, you pay him a max contract and he's not even close to that. Um, I mean, fundamentally, everything that uh, our emailer is saying is like, I'll, I'll agree with, like, he is very up and down he's very difficult to kind of wrap your arms around analytically and 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 uh just i guess parse what he's doing good and what he's doing bad i think at the end of the day he doesn't get as much credit as he deserves for i mean just he's so good at like everything you can't look at his game and spot an identifiable weakness which you can't say about any like a lot of players so right there kudos to him uh, you know, he can pass on the move. He can, he can spot up or shoot off the dribble. He can defend multiple positions. He can finish at the rim. Uh, I recently, I forget, I forget which game it was, but he actually drove the paint and finished with a two handed dunk, which basically has not happened from my own memory since he's been with the Celtics. So that was, you know, good to see. Cause he used to be super athletic. Um, And he also runs, like, a terrific two-man game with Kemba Walker. They're highly efficient when they operate together. But, but yeah, at the end of the day, like, he's also not a guy who is going to just, like, drop 39 in a playoff game, which is what you want when you're paying someone the max, right? And he does really smart things. He's really good off the ball. He doesn't really complain when... Uh, He isn't as involved as he should, and I think he's taken to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown's ascension extremely well because, you know, he came here to be one of the primary options. That's not going to be the case ever again. Uh, So he's accepted that role really well, so you got to commend that as well. Um, But yeah, it's a little disappointing when you look at how much money he's making. Um, And at the same time, I think the Celtics are pretty satisfied, I would say, with the production they get out of him.
4: Yeah, I, I well said, well well summarized. I think that in addition to this idea that uh, the emailer was raising about, oh, is he undrafted or you know max level player and all that, I mean he's also a victim of his own career arc expectations. In that you know he was blossoming into an all star level player, kind of like number one lead option scorer, makes a big free agency move. It feels like oh, this is going to be like you know kind of the very poor man's version of the decision, right? Where it's like, okay, he's, you know, probably not going to go lead a dynasty, but like this is like a big kind of power move in this entire, uh, you know, genre of those types of decisions. I mean, not on LeBron or, or Katie's level, but, you know, he a couple yeah that. he
5: He was the most coveted free agent of that class.
4: Yeah, which, which says something about that class, I, I would sure, say, but yeah. still, like, <laughs> you know, the injury winds up changing the entire story and just making it less interesting, making him less explosive, making him less capable of being the number one guy. If you want to run the simulation back and say he never gets injured, I think it's guys like Jalen and Tatum that are working in around him as opposed to the, the opposite scenario, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe Tatum winds up coming along so fast offensively that, okay, he has to be the number one option, right? But... Um, I don't think that Hayward would have found himself in as much of a complimentary role as he does now if he had continued ascending, as we typically expect for an all-star level wing, through his his late 20s. Um, and there's nothing he can do to control that. You can't blame a guy for injury, so it just is what it is. It kind of sucks, and there's no way around it. I find myself not particularly enjoying watching him play, even though he's <laughs> my type of player. No, and this is just a purely psychological okay. thing. I like his... his I mean if you're telling me a guy has no weaknesses, he's a good team player, he's bought into the concept, he can score efficiently when needed, he moves the basketball, he plays hard on defense, he's versatile. That's pretty much my checklist for guys, right? I mean that sounds like right up my alley. The problem is when I watch him I just think of what could have been or what should have been and it just leaves me kind of flat. I'm like, well, this, you know, it's this is the diet version. This this should have been better and That's a me problem. I don't know how to get around it, but I suspect I'm not the only person who has that issue.
5: That is a fair criticism. I mean, when he was that all star in Utah that last season, I mean, it was fair to compare him with Jimmy Butler and And Paul George. Even Paul George, yeah, I was going to say. Uh, that's how good he was. And so, and and just as a wing and a prototypical wing in this modern NBA. So, so yeah, from that perspective, 100%, I agree with you. It's a little disappointing, but like, here we are, this is the reality. And you kind of just got to take and see what you have in front of you.
4: Yeah, that's tough. I mean, the Brad Stevens offense where careers go to die, that's just too bad. All right, we got a question here <laughs> from Nick in Switzerland. He writes, There's one thing I'm a little disappointed about. You can't hear the players talking on the court when I'm watching on these broadcasts. Before the restart, a lot of people were talking about how awesome it would be to hear everything that was being said to the referees and so on, but now there's just nothing at all. I understand that the NBA maybe doesn't want the public to hear some of this stuff, but is there some possibility that this could change? Should we start a petition? And this question's for Bubble Ben. Have you heard any interesting stuff when you're at the games? So Nick, um... I don't anticipate a petition necessarily working here. I think the NBA is feeling very good about its television product and what's Mm -hmm. available and what's not. I feel like the players are pretty comfortable with that, too. In terms of the arguing for uh, calls, it actually sounds quite a bit like it would in a rec league game. Guys are screaming and one an awful lot. They scream, blow the whistle. They scream, did you see that? They scream, how did you miss that? <laughs> um, you know, basically any kind of uh, appeal that you would make to a referee in your five on five, you know, pickup lunch league, um, that's what the players do. Now, one amazing scenario that played out the other night, well, amazing for basketball dorks, at Lakers Thunder, Chris Paul winds up getting called for a defensive foul when LeBron is posting him up and chris paul felt like he had established the position he didn't feel like he had extended his arm he felt like he was you know in a completely legal spot so he first you know asked the the on-court referee like basically like what happened why did i foul him and he looked pretty miffed so then he started shouting down the court to Monty McCutcheon, who's been sitting courtside at almost every game. Monty McCutcheon might be the only person who's attending more games than I am. Um, Sam Presti, also in that mix, by the way. Just, you know, real basketball diehards going to these games constantly. So is sitting like 80 feet away from the play. And, and he is now an executive. He's not even an official anymore. He's like kind of oversees all the referees. And Chris Paul starts an extended conversation with Monty, addressing him by name. Monty, what did I do? You know, like, what did you see there? What happened? And uh, we're all just kind of chuckling at it. you know. This was in the first half, come out after halftime, Chris Paul like strolls over um, towards uh, where Monty's sitting and Monty has to remind him like, look, I can't come on the court, right? We have to be socially distant, but like if you stay there, I'll stay here and we could try to like talk this one out and, (laughs) and, and mediate it. And so Chris is still, you know, like kind of working the officials more than half an hour after that call. And by the way, Oklahoma City's winning comfortably the entire game they went on to win the game. I just thought it was like the most peak Chris Paul moment combined with the most peak Monty McCutcheon moment because he's just the nicest guy and will kind of engage on any issue and always stand (laughs) up for the referees. Also combined with like the most peak bubble moment all wrapped into one, right? Because this is sort of what we thought would happen if we all get to sit courtside and hear hear things. We would get to uh, hear Chris Paul gripe For more than a half an hour and take it to the bosses right like
5: I mean he's 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 talking to the manager on this one that is an incredible story this is exactly what I was hoping that you would provide when I heard that you were first going down to the bubble so great that's awesome um I guess like to answer Nick's question um I yeah I view not being able to hear the players as something just short of a national tragedy Like, I've wanted this since I was little. And, you know, just put it, like, put the games on, I don't know, like, HBO or something. And even if they air on, like, a 24-hour tape delay, I would just watch all the games twice just so I could get the experience of hearing the players talk without announcers or anything. Like, that's just what I think everybody wants. We're probably never going to get it. If we're not getting it now, then, yeah, that doesn't bode well for the future. Um but it is cool for you because you get to, like, it's, I, I would imagine it's relatively silent compared to a normal NBA setting. You're obviously sitting very close. And to hear, you know, players shouting at refs, players shouting at coaches, coaches shouting at everybody, like, that's just, that's awesome to hear.
4: Yeah, it it's pretty good. You can't hear everything, but you can hear a lot. The other thing I would say, Nick, is if you see when the players are gesturing up to the big screen and trying to tell the referees... Um, that they missed a call, that's exactly what they're doing. It's really not as interesting as it seems like they just say, hey, look right there, you missed it. Look, there's video right there (laughs) showing that you missed the call. That's pretty much what that conversation sounds like in real time. So um, the veil of secrecy that maybe you're feeling um, would be amazing behind the veil. It's, It's very cool, but it's also like completely predictable. I would also say like, other than a stray profanity here and there, if a ball goes out of bounds or you know a guy you know takes a shot um, you know like below the belt or something like that, there's not really objectionable content. Like these guys aren't cussing the refs out for three minutes straight, right? They're not demeaning people. I haven't heard anything that really crossed the line. Now, could we get there um, later in the playoffs? It's possible, just because the the intensity level will ramp up. But I think that in general, there's a lot of sportsmanship going on. You know, these guys want calls. They're definitely trying to work the officials, but they're doing so, uh, you know, with agreed upon terms, you know, And, and they're generally not crossing the lines. All right. Last question here from Joel. He writes, I'm the guy who was shooting free throws in my driveway when the deer showed up and you guys mocked me saying that I needed stronger mental fortitude. Then, a few weeks later, you guys talk about how hard it was for Rudy Gobert to shoot his free throws in a near-silent, empty gym. I demand an apology. Wow, Michael. Do we owe our buddy Joel an apology? Does he have a point
5: here? Uh, no. I don't think I don't even recall being too harsh on Joel. I mean, well, that was
4: me. I mean, I was the one who basically said he needed to like line up other animals to kind of improve his (laughs) mental focus. I mean, if the deer (laughs) is throwing him off, like I was a little bit nervous. But Joel, I mean, come on. There was a lot of pressure in that moment. The the whole COVID angle to it, the comeback, the idea that he's a seven foot I mean, maybe if Joel's a seven foot center, I would be more under you know, uh more understanding about his struggles in front of the deer because ultimately like it's a lot harder to shoot free throws if you're a big guy. We've seen that throughout history. Joel no offense I was picturing you as basically between 510 and six foot one um, you know wearing basketball <laughs> shorts that maybe embarrass your wife when you wear them in public um, you know shooting on maybe like an eight and a half foot rim maybe this is all my projection I don't know Joel I'm sorry you know this this is all my assumptions here um, just a slightly different game condition than opening night of the NBA bubble with millions of people watching on television at home that's what I'm saying
5: Right, I agree. I don't think that Joel experienced the the harsh criticism of being basically the first high-profile fo- high figure in this country to test positive for coronavirus. So, uh, Are you demanding that Joel proves that he's actually a patient zero? <laughs> Is that what you're saying before we're going to apologize? <laughs> God, Michael. My standards are high. What can I say? <laughs>
4: Incredible. Joel, uh, you make a good point. I'm not going to apologize. Uh, I don't think we have anything to apologize for, but certainly um, keep working on your free throw shooting and maybe send us your dimensions now that we've called you out as a 5'10 a dorky guy in basketball shorts. You can let us know how you're really rocking out there when you're shooting your free throws amid the wildlife. All right, Michael, we've made it to the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, Mail at gmail.com. Like Michael said, we, we really enjoyed that question um, from Switzerland about like, what's it like in the bubble? What's the experience like? If you have any other similar questions to that, let me know. I've been down here for a month. I'm not sure I'm ever going home. So I'm, I'm glad to take those kinds of questions. Um, all day long. <laughs> um, Michael, they can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for open floor. That's two words. When they find our page, scroll down, it will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Vias and Victor Pina. Be sure to check out all the pieces of content that we mentioned earlier he was everywhere from the ringer to gq and right on down the list 538 don't want to leave them out i'm on instagram at Ben.golliver. i'm on twitter at ben goliver P- please check out my twitter page sign up for my washington post newsletter i would greatly appreciate it all right guys until next week i will talk to you
6: start listening